it's Julie. Before we start the show, I just want to thank you for listening. And if you enjoy our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps get our show out in front of new listeners. Thanks again for listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. We hope you enjoy this interview. Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie hawkeiser Ilkovich. Today, I am here with Kim Kelleher, who's the Chief Business Officer at Condé Nast. Kim. So nice to be here with you, Julie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's start our conversation talking about coffee. What is your coffee drink of choice? I am a venti iced coffee with whole milk and one Splenda. Love it. Oh, so good. So simple and so, so good. One coffee a day, multiple coffees a day. Too many to count. <laughs> Do you find with the venti, does it kind of sit on your desk all day and become no. oh. I, That one's gone before I get to the office. No. We're, we're in a high caffeine consumption routine here. I like it. I've learned so much talking to so many incredible women about different coffee habits and maybe like what they mean for our careers. And I think out of this, there's like a book or at least an article about <laughs> what coffee, what your coffee order says about you. And the fact that we all use Starbucks nomenclature to define our size. <laughs> it's so true. When you said it, I was actually going to say like, do you use the mobile app? Like we jumped, we jump right into Starbucks. I was like, ooh. We're not sponsored, so I'm not sure. <laughs> At least not by Starbucks. We should um, be. <laughs> do you hear that, Starbucks? <laughs> I want to talk about your career path first and kind of start with the question, have you always wanted to work in this space or you know, in media? Was it something that um, you just kind of fell into, something you knew from college? So maybe start at the beginning with college and internships, but kind of shine a light on, did you know what direction you were going in? Sure, happy to. Um, so the short answer is no. I, I definitely did not. I was not one of those people that had an idea of what I wanted to do very young and just set out and got it done. Um, I grew up in a very small town in rural Wisconsin, a, a town of about 300 people. Um, my mom is still there, and I go back often, but it was it was small. And... Mm-hmm. I was one of, so my class size, I went to public high school. Um, my graduating class had 37 people. Oh my and seven of us went to college. Wow. So it was, it was different than, than our world here in New York City today. Um, and how did you know you wanted to go to college? Like in a community where, you know, not everyone, like where I grew up, it's like guidance counselors and sure. extra counselors that you pay to send you to college. Like sure. you really had to drive that probably. You know, uh, my parents, my parents, I give them full credit for, you know, they both had gone to college and found it really enriching. And they actually had made decisions. They had both had um my father in particular, a corporate career, and then made the decision to downsize and oh. moved us all up to rural Wisconsin and uh, <laughs> started a new chapter. I'm very thankful for it, and I, I go back as often as I can because I do find it the most peaceful place on earth, um, in addition to my family being there. But to your point, though, I was not surrounded by a lot of people that had big aspirations. Um, there weren't guidance counselors. There weren't... Um, 
there was no one holding your hand on the application process. This was way before the universal application <laughs> existed. Um, but I ultimately ended up going to University of Wisconsin in Madison. And um, it's funny, you were saying internships and kind of the, the building blocks of your career. You know, no one ever suggested internships. Right. I didn't do any internships. I didn't know that existed. Hear that, people? Um, like, let's get away <laughs> from the crazy culture of internships. I'm all for that. Like, chill. <laughs> but I do think it's changed. Okay. <laughs> I do think it's changed, in, in, in truthfully. But, no, um, I, I went to the university. I worked through college. Um, I had a job all four years. Once I left um, high school, I didn't go back. I did summers, and I worked down in Madison, um, to pay for college. It was not very expensive, so I didn't have to work that hard um, at the time. Um, but, you know, ultimately I was a Russian history major wow. and I graduated and had no idea what I wanted to do with the exception of I knew I wanted to live in New York City. So my, my kind of career came out of that one, mm-hmm. that one kind of desire, which was to go from growing up in one of the smallest places to actually finding and building a career for myself in one of the biggest places. So New York fit the bill. I moved out here. And what and attracted you to New York? Just the size. Okay. The big the bigness of it all really. The anonymity, the the size, the you know, when you when you're from a small town, you know, just as anyone listening knows, you get pulled over by the police and they say, Hey Kim, you're speeding. <laughs> <laughs> And you say, sorry, Mr. <laughs> so-and-so, um, I'll see you at school later tonight. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was definitely, when you grow up like that, some people find comfort in it, other people can't wait to get out of it. So I was on the ladder, and um, so I moved to New York, and I was able to land a job as a secretary at the time, as I was called, um, for a startup magazine called El Decor at Hachette Philip Hockey. <laughs> And, you know, I believe that, and I know as women, we're not supposed to use the word luck all the time, but I do believe it was true luck because my first job, having graduated with a Russian history major, um, no idea what I wanted to do. And my first job is the industry I still find myself in. So 25 years later, um, I'm really glad that worked out. It's amazing. And you just, (laughs) I mean, you must have just been open to anything right in terms of that's also that partially luck I agree but being open to the universe and not being like oh I don't want this this is not afraid to work hard right and uh, I feel like I you know it's funny I actually look for for those who are job hunting at the entry level stage I I don't look at internships um as a highlight on resumes that I look at. I, it's great if people have real actual experience. And nine out of 10, I'm thinking people take internships because they end up wanting to work in that firm or right. in that company. I actually, I love people at, at the entry level that are in the service industry. I was I was a bartender, I was a waitress. I, you know, I basically, I think people who, who work hard in those industries um, are usually pretty good right yeah <laughs> hard working they're hard working you yeah. learn a lot exactly it's real yeah um you'd be such a cool bartender I can totally <laughs> you know maybe in retirement that's what you'll go back to so after that internship what what path followed so well that one wasn't an internship oh I'm that sorry that actually, first job yeah that was my first kind of real job with a paycheck um you know I think I got paid you know fifteen thousand five hundred dollars a year <laughs> 
And uh, did you have roommates? I I did I did, and I actually still work here at Condé Nast with my roommate from back then. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> wow. I, I'm a I'm a people collector, which maybe we'll get into. That's later. That's great. But, I'd um, love to. But no, so I started there, and I stayed at Hachette for about six years. I had, I, I believe in in rapid growth and early movement, and I don't think that, you know, the the legacy aspect of getting into a job and waiting th- for things to present themselves to you, I don't think is reality. I think you have to kind of create your own destiny and your own career path. Um, so I, I just, I worked really hard and wherever I saw an opportunity to do more, I grabbed it and, uh, kind of one of those classic overachiever, mm-hmm. like really wanted my boss's boss's boss to know my name. Mm-hmm. So was just kind of readily available to pick up anything no one else wanted to do. And, um, I think that that was, that's a personality type, but it, it served me well, and it, it's probably still very much part of the way I work. Yeah, I mean, I think that's huge. And definitely talking to women on this podcast, they hear it a lot just in terms of go for it, look for things to do that almost don't exist to sh- make yourself a presence. I think it's such a good totally. advice. It's really important. Totally. But so, you know, six years at Hachette, um, they actually moved me back to the Midwest, I like to say. After a year in New York, they said I wasn't quite ready yet, so they moved <laughs> me back to their Chicago office. Oh, I was wow. there for four years, and then um, this Hachette brought me back, and I was the beauty sales director at Elle magazine, and wow. I did that for a few years. And then my career just kind of actually tripped around. I, where I saw opportunity and interesting um, roles and ways that I saw myself moving forward in said role, whether it was through learning or compensation or just itchiness. Mm-hmm. Um, I always, I was, I'm not afraid to jump through, jump through open doors. So my my career has me moving around a lot, and I know that sometimes that works for people. Other times it doesn't. For me, it, it definitely served me. I would say the thing that probably stood out is. I always, I've never had a job I didn't love, mm-hmm. and I always saw, I, I guess I see a lot of opportunity in places that others don't. For me, brands are great, all of them. So when I got a call from Sports Illustrated for Women, or from, from Sports Illustrated that they were launching a new magazine called Sports Illustrated for Women, um, I had been at L, and people are like, are you crazy? Who cares? I'm like, that's fascinating. Right. Let's go see if that's something real. Let I want to go build that. And I jumped over there despite the fact that everyone said, you're kidding, you're at L, you're on fire, this is this is the best. I've heard that a lot mm-hmm. with a lot of my moves. Like, you're crazy, you're you're at a pinnacle, why would you move? I'm like, why why wouldn't I keep learning? Right. Um, another big one for me was, I, I've left the industry, kind of the publishing industry twice, to work at startups. And I don't regret either neither worked out the way I had anticipated mm-hmm. when I went over but um, startup life so <laughs> but they definitely rounded out an experience that I've been able to bring back to publishing right. in both in both experiences so no regrets there I uh, I like to jump through open windows yeah I, le- I learned so much from your story like a just kind of keeping your eyes open I mean did you feel it doesn't sound like you were necessarily looking to leave but you had mm-hmm. op- you just were keeping your eyes open and being open to opportunity I feel like so many people shut themselves down and to the point then they get so tired of their job and then they're like desperate to leave so it's almost kind of always keeping an eye open I definitely think it's it should be more fluid 
than that. Right. Um, in my experience, it was always more fluid than that. But in addition, I also think, um, you know, <laughs> it's more about, I get itchy. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I feel like I, I tend to be goal-oriented. I have a general idea of what I want to accomplish. Mm-hmm and um, then put in place the, the tools to, to get it accomplished. And at that point, by the end of that project, if, if nothing else is, is lining up, I do start to go, I start to think about what next. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that guided a lot of my career. It's changed the more, the more senior the roles mm-hmm. have been. Um, once I started overseeing a large team, um, it becomes much more personal than that. It's not as selfish, if you, can, if you will. Um, and... It, my decisions have become much more considered. That's really that's that a very reason. interesting shift in term, maybe one we don't think about as we progress in our career that like our decisions become more and more relevant to other people's lives essentially. Well, you realize it takes a village and no one's doing it on their own or most people aren't doing it on their own. I'm certainly not. And um, you realize you're traveling in in a pack. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I love what you said about going to a startup and learning new things because, I mean, that's so valuable to be able to. I mean, I think for anyone in a job, whether it works out or they don't like it or it's different, like to just know that there's going to be some value in finding like what that value is and then taking it with you to where you're going to go. 100%. And now you're a chief brand officer here at Condé Nast. We are recording this in the beautiful building here at Condé Nast. And what does that mean? What do you do? <laughs> I have the great pleasure of being the steward that oversees several of our, our kind of larger brands. I oversee GQ, Wired, Ars Technica, Golf Digest, and a music company called Pitchfork. And um, the sales and marketing and comms and a number of other divisions that make these places tick. So um, the primary part of my job is generating revenue mm-hmm. um, for the brands and keeping the lights on. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I've, this is my second go-round to Condé Nast. I've been in variations of this job for the last four years. Oh, wow. Um, but so I'm coming up on my 16th year at Condé Nast from a, wow. career, from a career total. Wow. And it's just changed a little bit probably in the last in the 16 years. In the last day? No, <laughs> Since I got here, actually. <laughs> since we sat down to start talking. And given those types of publications and the brands that you oversee, mm-hmm. um, they, a bunch of them are skew male, mm-hmm. targeted more at men. Um, do you find that you're the only woman in the room? And you know, if so, how do you kind of handle that dynamic. I mean, we tend to think about this industry as female-dominated sometimes, but when we get to the executive level, often there's more men, and also you're working at these male brands. So um, tell us about that. So the the answer is actually no. Okay. I am I am not the only woman in the room. Condé Nast is, I, I, I don't know the exact number, but we are well over 50% female mm-hmm. as a company, which I actually think is representative media. I don't know if it's as representative on the agency um and client side mm-hmm. as much as it is on the media side. I, I, have ha- I have the pleasure of working with a lot of very strong, um, powerful women, and it's, it's very enriching. Um, but I do oversee a lot of brands that people are more male-targeted from an audience and reach standpoint. And uh, in particular, probably golf. 
stands <laughs> out as being a fairly male um, sport, though I actually I actually have found nothing, and I mean this in all sincerity, I found nothing but a welcome kind of wagon appeal. I walk in the room, I think that people appreciate a different point of view and opinion. I, I have had a really good experience on that side. Um, GQ, obviously, with a fashion lean, is is very diverse, mm-hmm. and, and I found that to be incredibly welcoming. For me, um, most of my experience has been on the tech side. Uh, tech and news has been kind of my forte right. for the last 12 years, and I, that also is pretty male. Um, that's probably been the hardest to navigate out of out of all of my brands. Um, I'm Wired is has a very special place in my heart. Um, when you're navigating CES, you know I feel like we're making progress, but the booth babe is still there, <laughs> and uh, and it definitely can be a little disconcerting, a little frustrating. But I I just I really challenge myself and the team to constantly elevate the conversation mm-hmm. back to what it's really about, right. which are really curious people talking about innovation and technology and what it's what it's doing to the world and what it's bringing to the world. And usually you can get things back on track. Yeah. Well, it's great to know that we're making progress for sure. <laughs> and as we're talking, it's interesting because I'm like, you know, I know those brands are male and I'm thinking like, is it sexist for us to be saying that they're male? <laughs> but they really just are, you know, even something like a Wired where like, well, of course women like technology, but I know, I am, I'm sure there are many hurdles just I historically. I the, the readers and, and frankly, a lot of the talent that works at Wired, very sensitive to this exact conversation because, you know, it, it's very frustrating actually for the women who work at Wired that it is bought as a male targeted mm-hmm. um, marketing solution. Yeah. And they're like, wait, 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 that's, right. that's totally not right. But, but to your point, you know, the numbers are the numbers, and you know, slowly chipping away. Wired is about thirty-five percent female readership, so we're making progress. Yeah, it's pretty good. And in, in this industry, I mean, you know, a lot of the brands you just have to focus one way or the other to like at least identify yourself. So I mean, it, it's it's difficult to navigate. You said that you are people collector. I'd love to hear more about that and what that means to you. Oh, that's very funny. I, I am surrounded by people here and have had the great pleasure and honor of working with what I think are the best in the business. Um, I have several people on this team as, as part of the collection over here at Condé Nast that I've had the pleasure of working with several of them over 15 years, so wow. a long time. Um, my associate Melissa, who you've met, um, she's she's been with me for 14 years, <laughs> and um, you know I find um, I find that some people tend to move through talent, and um, and I think that's one one way of approaching kind of how to constantly innovate and hold yourself to a culture of urgency and keep up with the rate of change that's happening. I prefer and have chosen to take the path of education, trust, confidence, and, um, and you know, we're, we're learning and navigating together. The people that I've worked with the longest also keep a pretty ferocious pace, um, but they tend, what we have in common is they, they love this industry. Mm-hmm. We, we love this industry. So, you know, obviously after that many years, we're friends. Um, so that's an interesting dynamic, but we, it's been long enough that we navigate it well in, in, in a business environment. There is still some hierarchy and a, certainly a deep level of respect of different roles and responsibilities. Um, but offline, it's funny, while we may not be talking about the day-to-day, we are talking about our shared love of the industry. Mm-hmm. And um, 
one thing that I was thinking about in anticipation of our conversation, I blew an interview a few years ago. <laughs> I was told by my comms person. Um, you were the interviewer or the no, interviewee? Oh, you were being, being interviewed <laughs> and my comms person was like, wow, you blew it. What? And uh, <laughs> You were scared like, for today after yeah, that. <laughs> I was a little, but I was thinking about it and the way I blew it actually ties to this, this part of the conversation. They asked me if I had um, what my hobbies were. And it literally stymied me. I, I was just sitting there, and there was like dead air. I'm like, uh, hobbies. I'm like, well, I, you know, I love my family. <laughs> like I like kids. I, I love. I like to ski and read. <laughs> you know, like I literally was like, uh, uh. things. And, like and they're looking things. at me like, no, no, no. You're like, who are you when you're not at work? And and I and I finally, after stumbling through like some lame ass kind of <laughs> examples of things I, I enjoy doing I was like actually I really like to work I really like to work and I am one of those people that likes it enough that you could probably say it's a hobby <laughs> because when I'm not working I tend to read stuff related right. to work I tend to hang out with friends who are in this industry and you know what I've been told that's sad and I actually am sad for people who don't love what they do enough that they're in the same situation. Right. So it's, I, I, I appreciate the, you know, people have kind of said to me, well, you know, you want to be more well-rounded than that. You want to, I'm like, really? Because I just, I, I love what I do. I love who I do it with. And does it get better than that? Right. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> and also it's interesting, like working in this industry, working, especially in magazines, Reading a magazine is a hobby, and so the lines kind of blur. Like, a lot of people are doing what you do for work in their spare time for fun also, so it's kind of hard to separate. It's like, it's fun, right? I mean, the whole thing is fun. I get to be in a business where I get to learn for a living, so it's just, it really doesn't get more exciting than that. And that's not only reading the great content that we produce here through the brands, but it's also in such a dynamic advertising environment. It's it's exciting. That's a goal. Learn for a living. But it's exciting. Not geeky. It's great. I love it. (laughs) Learn for a living. We're gonna take we're gonna take that as our life motto too. I love that. Do you do you have any role models or mentors that, you know, through your path you've had built relationships with? You know, it's funny. Someone, I, I was asked this question, you know, by a friend recently, and I don't think I have, and I think it's my age, um, I don't know if I ever had anyone say, well, I'm going to be your mentor, mm-hmm. and I don't think I've ever asked anyone to be my mentor. I do have a lot of people that we jokingly refer to each other as friendships. Right. <laughs> and oh, I love these that. are women in the industry in particular. There are some men, but women in particular that I have developed relationships with that are deeply meaningful to me and very guiding. Um, I, I would list Jackie Kelly as over at Bloomberg as one of those, Wendy Clark, um, the global CEO of DDB Needham. Um, there's actually a lot. I, yeah, I, I'm great. very lucky to have a, um, a kind of a wide swath of support and I do tap into it regularly. And I'd like to, I'd like to believe, and I think I do believe that that I give it right back to them. Mm-hmm. And and it's really, I think, I think I'm glad that it's become more defined for young people today. And I do have people who have asked me to be their mentor. Mm-hmm. I uh, and I take that very seriously. Right. And I don't say yes to everyone because right. I also I really want to be able to show up if I'm going to say yes. Um, but I think 
I think mentorship, it, it's funny, I, I actually am talking about this later tonight in an event, but I, I've been giving a lot of thought uh, about the difference between a boss and a mentor. Mm -hmm. And um, bosses can be great. They can take a deep interest in you personally, and they can help um, guide your career path through that organization. But ultimately, they are still your boss. Right. And a mentor is different. A mentor, I don't even think, has to be in the same industry. Mm -hmm. I think a mentor has deep knowledge of you, what drives you, mm -hmm. what's important to you, and actually a little distance from your day-to-day -day right. brings perspective for their advice to be even better. Right. So I, I do think the women I just named, they, while we're in the same industry, we don't work at the same companies. Right. Actually, we never have worked at the same companies. And I actually find that brings a lot of value to the conversation. I think a mentor has no skin in the game for themselves right. in the relationship, um, and a boss does. So right. I, I've just been thinking about this a lot. And so I think, interesting. And I've had employees or talent on the team ask me to mentor them, and I'm like, I don't know if I think if you are the boss, you can mentor someone on the team. Right. Not, not to the depth and the level that I think um, – Mentorship should be as you know as thoughtful as as what we would just talk right. about. Like, yeah, well, you're looking out for too many people. And I mean, for better or for worse, if if you're the boss, because you have to look out for the company, you have to a little bit look out for yourself too. Like, mm -hmm. what kind of? I mean, to what you're saying, the mentor doesn't really no skin in the game. Right, exactly, yep. and they understand like it. It really is personal to you. It's your, really just all so about interesting. you. It's yeah. interesting also to think about something you said really resonated with me in terms of mentors being like new kind of quote unquote because you know it's and I'm actually having dinner tomorrow with my mentee that I um, met through New York Women in Communications in the formal mentorship program we didn't know each other we were paired and we really you know this has been years now maintained this relationship and that was fabulous um, and I hope she's listening hi um, <laughs> but also yeah like I it is interesting that now it is kind of a formal process and that probably is new, right? Before it was just you had these relationships. And when I've been asked who my mentor is, there are people who I say, but I've never had a conversation with them ever about well, being a mentor. People, that's, I think that's very interesting and very telling. And that I would categorize as, as friendship. Right. Like these are people I really look up to and aspire to um, be like or learn from and that, want to be around. I don't know if that's mentorship though. Right. It's um, like 360 almost as mm -hmm. we talk. It's like, Right, friendship, I love that word. It is 360, and we help each other, yep. and it's not, yeah, one direction. And, you know, there's nothing, we celebrate each other's victories, right. and we cry for each other's losses. Right. And I think that, you know, some people could call that just straight friendship, maybe. But they're not, it's funny, I think of friends as people I hang out on the weekends right. with, and who know my kids, and... That's not the case with right. with the women I'm describing. Right. I, I don't know theirs. They don't know mine. But frankly, they know me better than than, than most people. Right. And you can have really candid conversations <laughs> yes. that you wouldn't have with your friends. They're, they're, our relationships are oriented around business. Mm -hmm. Right. They're business friends. Yeah. But you might not even work in the same profession, which is yeah. interesting. Wow. This is really opening my eyes <laughs> to the mentorship conversation. More to come on that. But that's it, it's very, very interesting. And I also think it's, you know, nice for people who are listening to this podcast to think about, I think people get stressed about having a mentor and maybe you can do a little bit of digging into your existing world and be like, oh, I already have mentors. Like, I mean, maybe they're not mentors, they're friend tours. Friend tours? <laughs> um, but you have that support system, which is, I think, again, like with internships, we're putting all the stress on like formal mm -hmm. mentorship that maybe we don't need to have. I do think it's important that people make time to put 
put excuse me put time into it yes it's not something I feel like one thing that I I have observed mm-hmm. with some of the younger people who have asked me to mentor them is um, a they almost I, I've gotten the feeling in some of these situations that they expect me to cater to them right and Ooh, I think boy. that that is I think that's a mistake right I think that it has to be it has to be a relationship it has to be mutual you have to let your mentor know you need them mm-hmm. you can't expect them to you know take on the responsibility and then be always on for you right you know, they it's 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 interesting but I, I that's a probably I think a that's whole nother conversation amazing <laughs> advice I know I'm gonna come back just to talk about mentors but I think that's key I mean it's kind of key to any relationship of like relationship maintenance and I think people get nervous with mentors like maybe even to the level of like, oh, I don't want to bother them, but it has to be maintained and you have to... Well, and you have to be specific. Right. What do you need help you want on? To get, right. Because most people, I'm guessing, if, if they are in an official mentor relationship, they're looking to help you problem solve and come up with answers for yourself that are custom suited to you. And to do that, like you have to come to the table. It's not just coffee. It's not mm-hmm. just lunch. It's not just how you doing. It's hey, let's let's triage this together and let's let's have an outcome. Right. Which I think most most senior executives, the ones that you're worried about bothering, they love that. Right. They come love the that. agenda. They though. like helping. Yeah. They they want to help you get through it and they want to help you, you get done. What I don't have time for and what a lot of people don't have time for is coffee. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can I pick your brain? <laughs> Do you, what would you look for if someone is saying, Can you mentor me? Mm-hmm. Is it just that kind of that you know that they're like organized and really are going to go for it? Is there something else? I always say my first response is, um, For what? Yeah. So know what you want is the like, key to you, the mentorship. Are you looking for, you know, are you looking for short-term advice on change or how to handle a dynamic in the office or, and it doesn't have to always be that. It can be more lar- like far-reaching, mm-hmm. um, but I usually, I usually like to understand what they're looking to get out of the relationship other than just knowing each other. And sometimes that's enough. And sometimes that's enough. So timing is also important. Right. But, but I do think... Um, I do think, you know, being specific and thoughtful and not just kind of showing up right, right, is, right. is really important. Yeah, that's great. That is great advice and going to be very helpful, I think, to a lot of people. Well, New York Wiki has this Women Heard initiative, which we've talked mm-hmm. about on this podcast before. And, you know, it's kind of um, guided our conversations to this podcast to talk to each uh, woman we interview about their career and about you know their own advice, but also to get kind of more specific around bigger issues and things that we're talking about within the communications industry. Um, so specifically today, I wanted to talk about the media industry, which you are working in. And you know, let's start by just kind of talking about the trends. Like, what are some trends that you've seen change within this industry for better, or for worse, or that might be just like completely surprising, pleasantly surprising? <laughs> uh, okay, so disclaimer question on this: more people stuff or more specific business trends? Good question. I think both. Probably initially thinking about yeah the actual business trends and mm-hmm. what the direction of kind of magazines and, and the industry is going. But even just if there's things you've learned about people and prof- you know professional career direction, I think that would be helpful as well. I think probably the thing I'm thinking about the most and what I think about at three in the morning often is what kind of what I would call the collapse of the traditional kind of consumer funnel um, for advertising. And I think that 
I've worked in businesses that have been top of the funnel um, for most of my career. And I think that what with the advent of and the prominence of, of digital and the way consumers are consuming content, it's, it's a very exciting time for brands that have traditionally been top of the funnel to have deep insight about their audiences and their habits. And we're spending more and more time at the bottom of the funnel, at the point of transaction or at the point of decision. And so what that means is there's a collapse in the middle, potentially. And what's been really fun to navigate um, and think about a lot is how do you, you know, I know how to monetize. I know how to create revenue at the top of the funnel, branding and, mm-hmm. you know, awareness. And But I think what's been really exciting is learning how to translate the power of our brands and the power of our content to the bottom of the funnel. And at how do you make that connection from, so let me illustrate an example. So your Procter & Gamble, you know, name the company. I'm just picking them off the top of my head. Your Procter & Gamble, you spend so much money, you know, tens of millions of dollars um, behind developing your brand and creating a trust proposition with your consumer that the brand is not only going to deliver all the attributes you're, you're advertising to them, but that it's going to be consistent. I think that's fascinating and it's great and it's worked forever, but then you get to point of purchase, whether it's actually in a brick and mortar retail or on Amazon or wherever you're actually going to buy that brand. And none of that has translated Mm -hmm. to that point to that, what I would call the most important moment, right? Which is, which is that where you actually need them to click and make a purchase or pick it up and walk it to the cash register. And I think that, I think bricks and mortar has done a better job than e-commerce. And I think there's a real opportunity to connect those two things in a discernible way. I also think then where our brands come in is there's an opportunity for third-party endorsement at point of sale that doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. And I'm really bullish about, you know, it's, it's not only, okay, so it, I'll use GQ as an example. If, if every man has to have the perfect, perfectly pressed white shirt right. to get through this fall season, <laughs> um, you know how, yeah. how could you not um, if every man needs the shirt um, I think that's actually something that that the smarter manufacturers and retailers would actually make sure to reinforce at point of sale right you know GQ says no outfit is complete without no fall out no fall wardrobe is complete without the perfect white shirt having that reminder at point of sale is essential mm-hmm. that's that's gonna tip someone over the edge right or or keep or justify your inflated price or you know or 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 and I think it's I think that's very exciting and that's what we're spending a lot of time thinking about um, that's talking cool. about here and trying to figure out how to make the power of our brands move down the funnel and work down the funnel. Right. So that's what I'm thinking about on the business side. People side, I would say what I'm thinking about the most is how times of great um, transition, mm-hmm. uh, how hard it is to navigate for the younger people that are coming into our company. Mm-hmm. I think about that a lot. Our turnover um, and attrition is not where I want it to be. It, it plagues me, it plagues Condé Nast, it's something we talk about a lot, and it's something we're really intent on, on trying to figure out, mm-hmm. how to be a better destination and how to hold people in. I read an article recently in Harvard Business Review that I thought nailed it. Um, they talked about the trellis to the tapestry is the example they used. They said, careers used to be a trellis. You used to climb the ladder and know mm-hmm. where you were going to go. You one rung at a time. 
that doesn't exist anymore because that that worked when your company could actually put together a 10-year plan and stick to it. Right. We don't know what's going to be happening in the next five years, right. three years, six months. <laughs> six months. It's it's no joke. Right. You, you know you understand this well, Julie. So what the article basically said is it's training. It's talking to your talent about how it's not going to be a straight line. It's not a trellis. It's not a ladder. It's a tapestry. You may need to move right. You may need to move left. You, you, it's very hard to give them a roadmap right. when you don't have one. Right. So what you can do is, is I think, over-communicate that that's what it's like to work during times of transition mm-hmm. and change. And, and what I like to encourage my team to be is cross-athletics. So be cross-athletes. Mm-hmm. Be good at a lot of things. You know, we don't have boxes for our roles and responsibilities. Like there's no, hey, stay in your corner attitude here. It's really, you know, if you have interest and you have bandwidth, go wide. Right. Like the more the merrier. We are, you know, most companies are resource challenged, mm-hmm. you know, and if, if that's like calling people resources, but right. you know, talent challenge, we just we don't have enough people to right. do the volume All that the we're stuff. doing. So so I think we've we've gotten a lot less special about keeping people in their silos and yeah. and we really work hard to to move them around and we think about that a lot I think about that a lot it's great I mean it's great to hear someone at an executive level also like say that they get it because I think also you know I know we have a lot of students and young professionals who listen to this podcast and often I'm it really feels lonely is not the right word but like oh no one gets what gets it at the top when you right. come into the company and well, it's really I also think they have parents that they're very close to who are like well do what your job is and you'll get promoted right the, the reality now. is that may not be true right like there may not be a next step for what you're doing right and frankly you know we I've seen situations in the last couple of years where entire departments have been phased out because that's the company has changed direction on what it's prioritizing. No one in those departments did anything wrong. Right. You know, the goal would be, I guess, to <laughs> to make it, to keep yourself as versatile and cross athletic as possible in in your corporate environment. It also really it pushes young people to to be known mm-hmm. and to be interested and engaged and and understanding and I, I have to say I, I give some examples I've lost some people I don't want to lose be, and the conversations usually go like this I want to be promoted I've been here a year mm-hmm. and and we had talked about this a year ago so it's time for a promotion it's time for my raise I'm like but we're we're not able to do that for financial reasons or for you know that position that I was going to promote you in doesn't exist anymore right. or whatever I, what what's difficult and I've learned from those conversations that's really what's formed me to get a lot more information on this said on this exact topic I've 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 been surprised how inflexible mm-hmm. some of the young people are how often they cite their parents as well you know truly I, I hear about <laughs> people's parents a lot which is which is very funny to me and I have kids so I totally I hope they talk about me right. in the same way but it's but such a different it's a different it's universe a very diff- a different that's a generational world. thing yeah. I really cannot recall referencing a conversation with my mom or dad um, in the office when I was when I was kind of early in my career but I, I do hear from young people about so. what their parents think about what they do often which I, I it truly makes me smile I don't have negative feelings about it I don't have positive feelings about it I do think it's strange right. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it's also <laughs> just, especially if they're parents. I mean, yes, you want to take your life advice from your parents, but we talked before about, like, advice that's specific to you and then also your industry. Yeah. Like, they're not here. It's really hard. I had, I had one young woman um, who I did offer a promotion to tell me that she needed to call her mom and come back before she accepted and I actually I thought it was very sweet except she came back and said you know I really would like more money and I said perhaps I should call your mom (laughs) (laughs) I know don't give it away like fine ask your parents it's just interesting I think it's great to ask your parents don't bring them into the room like to the negotiation I mean you know you wouldn't do that and actually some women might find it like horrifying if you were like I need to talk to my husband like Clearly, you probably want to talk to your family about it, but I don't. Woo, that's a great, this is eye-opening. I have another quick one I'm going to throw up because I, th- I think maybe people listening might find this humorous, horrifying, and I'm not sure. But I'm also, I'm on the board of the journalism school at Wisconsin, and I've gotten really back involved with, with the school again just in the last few years, and I'm absolutely loving it. I go back twice a year, teach a class, or wow. talk to the students, and then um, work with the um, faculty at, at the journalism school to to make journalism still an enticing career choice for young people. <laughs> Not always the easiest conversation, but the um, I was looking at some stats the last year, and it was the first time the number of students looking at the university um, was topped by the number of parents looking at the university. Wow. So we had actually uh, the record number of parents that were checking out University of Wisconsin for their kids, and their kids weren't even there. So it was the most time the parents came. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and so I do think, I think as as someone who has a, a big kind of diverse team, um, age-wise and otherwise, right. I, I do feel like those trends are something we have to pay attention to. And it's it's I'm not here to, to judge, it, but I, I do want to understand yeah, the motivation. Right. And um, you are looking at a generation of uh, coming into the workforce that has been raised differently yeah. than perhaps we have been raised or, or and you know, I, I, I sound old saying that. I no, that, I think but, it's, but it is. And but it's it does, just different. each generation does change. It's so, well, and and just, then there's nuance. I went on my college tours by myself. Me too. Like, right? <laughs> so me it's too. interesting to me. And, you know, to when I think back, and pe- I'm just, I'm fiercely independent anyway, but when I think back to it, so much of that, those experiences shaped my way. So that's another another book that, Kim, you're going to write it. Totally. I get a lot of LinkedIn requests from parents looking for jobs for their kids too. Wow. <laughs> and I would love, and maybe this is a future podcast, I'd love to interview like a young <laughs> professional and understand, like, I get asking, and I'm very close with my family, and I ask my sisters everything. I would never tell you, like, <laughs> oh, my sisters wrote the questions for this podcast. Just cause, So I'm just, you know, in one hand, it's like, okay, is it good that people are just open about everything? Probably not. <laughs> um, I've had the best time talking to you. We could, I could go for another hour, so maybe a part two. But before we wrap up, tell us your work motto. Oh, that's easy. It's it's been it's been for a long time. I have a huge sign in the front hall that travels with me wherever I go, and it's just work hard and be nice to people. I love that. You know, when I walked in here, I saw that sign, and we actually had that. I I work at a WeWork, and we had that sign at the WeWork, and it inspired me when we moved into that office. I love that so nice, and I think I mean it's just work it's, hard it's and very, be nice it's to as, people. It's as simple as it sounds. Just be nice. Be nice. Work your butt off. And everything is going to be fine. And it's gotten you very far. So guess what, people? Please listen to Kim. That's incredible (laughs) advice. 
Where can our listeners find you if they want to follow you? On you, are you on social media? I am. I'm. I'm on all of them. So okay. it's it's Kim Kelleher across the board. Except I have a bad Twitter handle. I have Kim Kelleher too. Okay, at, on Twitter. <laughs> I love that so much. Who's Kim Kelleher and Kim Kelleher one, um, and it, the last name is K E L L E H E R. Kim, thank you so Julie. much. Julie, thank you. Oh, this, this was, was fun. So fun. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. And for more information about this podcast, you can follow New York Women in Communication on Twitter at NYWICI. And you can find all the episodes at nywici.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie hockheiser Ilkovich. Thank you to the amazing team that works on this podcast. Chelsea Orcutt, Chrisanne Grise, Kylie Harris, Elizabeth Roberts, Andrea Goldstein, Mandy Carr, and Alex Fetter, who wrote our original theme music. For more information about Coffee Break with New York Wiki, go to newyorkwiki.org slash podcast. That's nywici.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening.